Gweezy, Autumn Chanel Villagey, Chief Jim Cooey, Janet Cooey, Jacqueline Cooey, Wade Chanel Shadeji. Welcome to episode two of Recoding Relations, a podcast series on indigenous new media and the politics and potentials of the digital humanities. Co-created by Melissa Haberl and I, this series captures some of the key themes and discussions from the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, which was held as a part of this year's Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria on the unceded territories of the Wasainich, Lekwungen, and Esquimalt peoples. As members of CATR's Indigenous Radio Collective, who produced the show Unceded Airwaves, Melissa and I traveled to Victoria this past June to attend and record presentations at the conference. The Symposium for Indigenous New Media, or SINM 2018, was a gathering place for folks studying and working in new media, indigenous studies, and the digital humanities to come together, share ideas, and discuss critical issues facing the field. We listened to scholars from over 20 institutions and three continents present research on topics as diverse as indigenous video games and virtual reality, communications, technology, digital text, social media analytics, indigenous language revitalization, and archival digitization. Melissa and I are so excited to share some of those conversations with you here and hold up the community building and digital innovation that we saw at the conference. And we hope that this series inspires more learning, dialogue, and relationships across the digital humanities and indigenous studies. I think this to me is how, this, this captures something really critical about language revitalization is not merely um, about learning how to be Cree. Language revitalization is a polity. That being Cree is in relationship to a political structure and system um, that must be resisted. You just heard a clip from Jeffrey Ansluce's panel talking about how being Cree and speaking Cree is a polity. He uses his Creeness to unite himself with other Nehiawen and what his indigeneity means to him. Now you're going to hear a short clip from Daisy Rosenblum about her perspective on language revitalization. Uh, and I think increasingly we're, we're thinking and speaking about uh, reclamation rather than revitalization. Um, and I, and I um, was struck by hearing someone say, you know, it's, it didn't die, and that's true. Um, so uh, even when it's sleeping, even when there are no longer... Um, uh, living relatives who grew up speaking the language, the language has not died. So, um, but sometimes it does need to be reclaimed. Here, Daisy talked about the difference in reclamation and revitalization. Daisy and Jeffrey both talk about language revitalization in very different ways, yet are both right. This is an example of how indigeneity can exist and be analyzed in very different ways, yet still coexist and build on one another. In episode two of Recoding Relations, we are going to talk about what indigeneity looks like in the digital humanities. In this episode, we are going to hear from three scholars, and we will hear Jordan's able story about how his book Injun came to be, and his personal experiences that shaped it. Following that, we will hear from Maze Longboat about what makes a video game indigenous. And lastly, we will hear from Michelle Nahaney about how she used her MFA graphic design project as a really smart and witty decolonization tool. Similarly to the point that was made in the early intro, these three scholars approach their indigeneity in very different ways and with different art forms, and it's really important to acknowledge that indigeneity has very porous borders and can't be put in a box and defined in the same way. As you will hear in episode three in Ashley Morford's speech, indigenous people worldwide have always had their own forms of digital. Digital isn't just defined as smartphones, computers, and tablets. It can be almost anything. Um, but stay tuned to hear more about that in the next episode. The first person that we will be listening to is Jordan Abel, so here is what Jordan has to say. My name is Jordan Abel. Uh, I am a Nishka writer from Vancouver. Um, I wanted to start off with that uh, identification uh, because for many indigenous peoples, I think these kinds of national identifications can indicate uh, one's home, one's family, um, one's position within indigeneity or position in relation to uh, community. And, and likewise, uh, these kinds of national identifications um, it can be an indicator of 
which community or communities uh, we are accountable to. Uh, for example, uh, Lely Long Soldier identifies as being a citizen of the Ogala Lakota Nation. Uh, Louise Erdrich identifies as being both uh, uh, being of both Chippewa and German American descent. And Scott Mamaday identifies as being Kiowa. Craig Womack identifies as being Muscogee Creek and Cherokee. However, I should say that these kinds of national identifications do not always adequately account for the complexity and plurality of indigenous existence. For some indigenous peoples, they simply do not tell the whole story. Uh, for example, when I say that I'm Nishka, you might assume that I grew up in Kinkolith, BC, uh, like my grandparents. You might assume that when I say that I'm Nishka, that I speak Nishka. You might assume that my writings reflect on Nishka knowledge, Nishka worldviews, and Nishka understandings. Then again, you might not assume any of those things. Uh, a, a few years ago during the City of Vancouver's uh, Year of Reconciliation events, I was at a dinner meeting at a restaurant on Water Street uh, in downtown Vancouver. I was one of several poets um, commissioned to write a poem in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, for an initiative that was called Reconciliation Through Poetry um, that was sponsored by SFU's Center for Dialogue. The, the work that the poets were engaging with was meant to honor the work of Chief Robert Joseph. At the dinner meeting, the poets, along with a few administrators, talked with Chief Robert Joseph, exchanged stories, and discussed what reconciliation meant for both indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. After a while, Chief Joseph directed his attention towards me, and at that point, uh, he, he asked me where I was from, and I told him that I was Nishka, and that my grandparents were from Kinkolith. After a few moments, he said, you're not really Niska. Some of my friends are Niska. Do you know how I can tell? If you were really Niska, you'd have said Niska with a K sound. You said Nishka with an SH sound. You know, I don't really know how to respond to that. And my grandparents are Niska. My dad is Niska. But to a certain extent, I guess he had a point. I wasn't born in Kinkolith, I was born in Vancouver, moved when I was very young, and essentially grew up in Ontario. But does that make me less Niska? And what does it mean to be Niska with a K sound? And what does it mean to be Nishka with an SH sound? What does it mean to be Niska but to have grown up removed from the Niska community? What does it mean to be indigenous if your relationship to community has become severed? What does it mean to be both an intergenerational survivor of residential schools and an urban indigenous person? I think these are the questions that I've been struggling with over and over again uh, throughout the course of my life. So... I want to tell you about my life for the purposes of openness, honesty, and transparency. I think especially uh, in this moment uh, where there have been so many questions about how we define indigeneity uh, and, and, and questions about who or who does not count as indigenous. I'm telling you about my life because I am accountable not only to the Niska community, but I'm also accountable to the communities of intergenerational survivors of residential schools and communities of urban indigenous peoples. I'm accountable to the communities of dispossessed indigenous peoples who are not able to find their way back to their communities because of an ongoing legacy of colonial violence. I am accountable to myself and I hope to talk openly about my subject position within the scope of indigeneity. Colonialism 
has had and continues to have a profound impact on Indigenous peoples. And some of that legacy of violence has been discussed at length, and some of that legacy of violence remains silenced. Uh, this, is, this is my dad. His name is Lawrence Wilson. I've met this man once in my life, when I was 23. He's the first Niska person I've ever met. He's a carver and a painter, and he carved uh, the mask that he's wearing in that photo. He lived in Vancouver for most of his life and mostly worked as an artist. Here's a photo of him uh, painting a frog that is currently hanging on my wall in Edmonton. This is uh, a photo of the finished painting. And this is, uh, this is my mom and my dad. Catherine Abel on the left, Lawrence Wilson on the right. They met sometime in the early 1980s, and I was born on April 13th, 1985. In an affidavit from the Provincial Court of British Columbia between my mother and my father, dated May 8th, 1996, the fourth line reads as follows. On June 15, 1987, Miss Abel was advised by Detective Michael Miller of the Vancouver Police Department that Mr. Wilson was under investigation for a possible sexual assault against a 15-year-old girl. Line 5. On June 16, 1987, Miss Abel was advised that Mr. Wilson had, in fact, been charged with a sexual offense against a 15-year-old girl. Thereafter, nothing was heard from Mr. Wilson. He neither exercised his access pursuant to the terms of the order of May 21, 1987, nor contacted Miss Abel in any way. Line 6. In the fall of 1987, Miss Abel confirmed her instructions to us to continue to act as her agent as she no longer resided in the province of British Columbia. Her instructions were that we should notify Miss Abel of any inquiries from Mr. Wilson or attempts to contact her so that she could make the appropriate arrangements for the exercise of the access to which Mr. Wilson was entitled by court order. Line 7. Miss Abel provided our office with her forwarding address following her departure from the province of British Columbia. Line 8. We have received no inquiries from Mr. Wilson or anyone acting on his behalf with respect to the matter of access to the child, Jordan Sky Wilson Abel, born April 13, 1985, since the date of our appearance in court on her behalf on May 21, 1987. Line 9. At the time of Mr. Wilson's disappearance in June of 1987, to the best of my knowledge and belief, Mr. Wilson has been in receipt of income assistance benefits for a period of some years and was not in a position to provide support. That fact, combined with his disappearance, resulted in our recommendation to Ms. Abel not to pursue Mr. Wilson for child support, given that she continues to have no knowledge of his whereabouts or financial circumstances. The likelihood of any family support from Mr. Wilson is too remote to justify the costs associated with pursuing such an action. The affidavit summarizes my mother's departure from BC, the sexual abuse committed by my father, and his subsequent disappearance. But what the affidavit does not cover is that Lawrence Wilson, shortly after becoming a father, was also emotionally and physically abusive. In a letter that my mother wrote to me around 2008, she says that when she was seven or eight months pregnant, Lawrence revealed to her that his father and that my grandfather had been violent to his mother, my grandmother, that he had broke her leg, knocked out her teeth, etc. Later, she writes that not too long after Jordan had come home from the hospital, that Lawrence's behavior changed. She notes that Lawrence became pathologically jealous and that he began to take his anger out physically. 
threw, threw a chair and broke it, crashed the baby's drying rack over the empty crib, and then clubbed her over the head while she was breastfeeding. Later, she writes that when she finally got up the nerve to suggest that they weren't working out, that they should live separately. Lawrence, in response, took such great offense to this that he knocked her on the floor and smashed a large clay ashtray over her head. According to the letter, he took off on his bicycle right after that. Here, she notes that, that she departed immediately afterwards for Victoria, where her brother lived and stayed there for two weeks to recover. My first memories are of Ontario. I lived with my mother. None of the indigenous side of my family was around. She had told me that my father had disappeared and there was no way to contact him. It turned out that was mostly true. I grew up not knowing and not understanding why I was disconnected from my Niska family. When I finally decided that I needed to figure it out, I was eventually able to track down my father and several of my aunts and uncles, but it was over the phone with my Aunt Bonnie that everything in my life started to make sense. Why some of the indigenous side of my family didn't talk to each other? Why I felt so isolated? Why everything was so broken? She told me quite plainly that both of my grandparents were survivors of residential schools. In fact, they met each other in the same residential school, the Presbyterian Coquilitsa Indian Residential School in Chilliwack, BC. She told me that, that the best she could describe it was that her parents and that my grandparents had learned how to be parents from residential schools that all of that sexual, physical, and emotional abuse they had been taught in residential schools formed the foundations for their approaches to parenting, and that when it was time for them to become parents themselves, they passed all of that abuse down to my father's generation. I think for the first time in my life, I understood why I didn't know any of the Niska side of my family. I understood why my experience of indigeneity was primarily based around confusion, disconnection, and isolation. I began to understand that even though I've never attended <coughs> residential schools, that my life had been profoundly shaped by an intergenerational trajectory of violence, and that the violence perpetrated in those schools doesn't just stop after the schools are closed or after an apology is issued. My position as an urban indigenous person growing up in the city without a connection to my home community and as a person impacted by intergenerational trauma is one of disconnection and lack. In my creative work, however, the lingering presence of residential schools, residential school violence is perhaps not explicit. Instead, McKegney's book, Magic Weapons, he suggests that the residential school haunts native literature in Canada as subject matter, as setting, as repressed memory, as source of anger, shame, pain, and violence, and an unspoken backdrop, backdrop to conditions of authorship. But it is nearly always there, even when it isn't. Residential schooling has so marked the social and political contexts out of which First Nations writers write, that it persists as a subtext to even those modern works that do not speak of it explicitly. It maintains a shadow presence, an unspoken antagonism that threatens community through its very silence. I would suggest that one might read that shadow presence and that silence and that haunting into every moment in which my writing engages with settler colonial texts, since those are also moments where I am attempting to grapple with my own experiences as an intergenerational survivor of residential schools. Since these are moments in which I'm forced to search for indigenous representation through a distorted colonial lens, 
because of the ways in which intergenerational trauma has impacted my ability to connect directly with members of my community. What I'm suggesting here is that the shadow presence of residential schools underpins much of my work, even if those connections are never made explicit. So the shadow presence of residential schools has come up uh, really recently for me, um, or I was confronted very recently by it in an essay that uh, Andre Kalanen uh, wrote uh, in The Walrus called A Loss for Words uh, that focuses on my book, Injun. Um, in the essay, uh, Kalanen describes uh, my, my writing as follows. Injun focuses on language, on the loss of one's comfort with some words and the intrusion of others. Abel's language may be pulled from early American pulp books, but the collection reads as commentary on Canada's colonial projects, namely the disruption via the residential school system of the passage of indigenous knowledge and language from generation to generation. None of this is said, mind you. There's no mention of residential schools or the potlatch laws that suppress the traditions of the Niska nation of which Abel is a part." End quote. Later, Kalanen goes on to describe her reading experience of the book. Here's what it looks like when I read the book. I'm turning pages right to left by force of habit, and then writing my path by turning pages left to right while reading them right first, then left. The effect is almost slapstick. The upside-down book is like some kind of dunce cap announcing that I don't know which way is up. I may be an experienced reader of poetry, but I look like a buffoon." End quote. Well, Kalanen does gesture towards the seriousness of the subject matter, it seems she's also confounded by a, by a moment that seems to destabilize her reading practice and her relationship to both indigeneity and Canadian residential school history. Without getting too caught up in this moment, though, I think it's important to remember that this is, uh, one, a book that is dedicated to the indigenous peoples of the Americas, two, a book meant to articulate and affirm indigenous presence, and three, I think importantly, a book that is not intended to shame settler readers for not knowing how to engage, but rather a book that hopes to invite a dialogue about how colonial writing had shaped us and continues to shape us. I think for me, this is where intersectionality needs to arrive. The moment where the reader turns the book upside down and is asked to read both forwards and backwards, both up and down, is also a moment where the reader is asked to understand and relate to indigenous experience and the experience of intergenerational trauma. The moment that is missed here is that conceptualism and text mining are, for me, ways to work through issues in urban indigenous identity and issues of intergenerational trauma, while at the same time providing a pathway to destabilizing and questioning settler colonial canons. To be fair, though, there have been a number of critics that have pointed to certain forms of conceptualism's inability to engage politically. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Jordan. It was so meaningful. Indigeneity isn't always pronouncing your community name in the way that others do or growing up on the reserve. Sometimes it's just understanding that the way you exist is different from the way that other people exist simply because of intergenerational trauma. Sometimes it's about not understanding the way that your family handles things because of their trauma brain or inability to understand that something better can be out there simply because that's all they've ever known. Jordan described his process in creating his piece, but if you would like to hear the full piece, you can tune into episode four of Recoding Relations. From here, it makes a lot of sense to discuss what makes something indigenous. And I think Maze Longboat tackles that very well. He discusses why he chose his major, what his process was like in creating his video game, and again, what makes something, specifically a video game, indigenous. So here is what Maze had to say. Um, so I want to uh, also begin by acknowledging um, 
the Ligwangan people. Uh, now the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations uh, and the West Sac uh, people whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. Um, so, uh, Sego, hello. Uh, my name is Maze Longboat, and I am Mohawk from Six Nations of the Grand River, uh, but was raised in Coast Salish territories, um, very close by here. And uh, last fall, I moved to uh, Jajage, uh, otherwise known as Montreal, uh, to pursue an MA in Media Studies with the Communication Studies Department at Concordia University. Um, but I just want to say it's like a real uh, blessing to be back on the lands and waters that I called home for so long, um, where I made my very first memories. Um, and it's an honor to have been invited uh, to be present for this enriching and uh, needed gathering uh, of all of you. Um, why communication studies? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect uh, when I applied to this program. Um, but I'm really going to appreciate the depth and diversity of how academic work uh, can be conducted uh, through it as a lens of approach. Um, but what I did know when I applied was that communications uh, is very broad and nebulous. Um, but that field is very closely tied to media forms um, and largely seems to wholly accept the ever-changing methods of production and expression um, that new media provides. So it, was, it seemed very uh, open to what I, what I was interested in. Um, and for my graduate studies, I knew that I wanted to take the theory I learned uh, during my time in First Nation Studies uh, and Indigenous Studies at uh, UBC um, and continue to enmesh it with my unwavering curiosity of uh, video games. But I didn't just want to write about games. Uh, the Media Studies program at Concordia openly welcomes students who want to pursue practice-based uh, research creation projects, and I saw no better opportunity uh, than to grow my practical skills in game development uh, within that academic setting, which I am very comfortable in. <laughs> so uh, today I'm going to talk about my proposed MA research project where I intend on studying indigenous video game development and I'm preparing to defend the proposal within the next few weeks. Also be, uh, briefly speak about my work um, as a graduate research assistant with the Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace uh, Research Network at Concordia with uh, Jason Lewis and Skawanadi. Obviously, Indigenous peoples uh, are both players and producers of video games. Uh, my research project uses the term Indigenous to define video games and game development practices that are grounded in their direct cultural connections to a specific territory's original inhabitants. Uh, while they are tied to specific communities and cultural contexts, Indigenous video games also encompass the work of individuals who wish to communicate their own unique narratives through the medium. At their core, indigenous video games are made by indigenous peoples. As the library of indigenous-made games continues to grow, it's important to understand the motivations, qualities, and creation processes of these games and their developers. My research project combines theory and creative practice to study these aspects of indigenous video games through the production of my own game, alongside a written survey of relevant literatures, a media contextualization, and a reflection on process. By my creating a video game, this research project seeks to answer the following questions. What makes indigenous video games? And how will the game created as part of this project be informed by my own experience as a Mohawk person? Um, this research matters for several reasons. First, it heightens the visibility of indigenous uses of emergent digital media. Ongoing systems of colonization seek to relegate indigenous peoples and indigenous identity to a past time that is separate from our contemporary era, era of digital technology. It's my intention to speak against this dominant narrative in my research and through my creation method, as indigenous peoples are present and active participants in the technological world. Uh, second, while a lot of work has been done to examine the representation and narrative um, in indigenous games, only very little research has been done to study the specifics of video game development by indigenous peoples. Using research creation as one of the primary methods for this project is a way for me to explore the questions of what makes indigenous games further than if I were to only write about it. And third, my personal long-term interests lie in digital media production uh, with an indigenous focus. And this project is a perfect way for me to expand my practical skills in making digital works. I've been a player of video games for as long as I can remember. Uh, some of the most cherished memories are related to video games. Uh, and I personally connected with games made by indigenous developers in ways that have left me with critical questions that I want to investigate through an academic lens. I always like to talk about the first time I ever played Never Alone, and just as a little bit of a sidebar, um, 
I know that it's not necessarily like an indigenous developed video game, but um, I just kind of want to uh, talk, just acknowledge like what that did, uh, what that game did for me. Um, and after playing that game for the first time, I had a profound, uh, this profound moment of clarity. It was like um, that this game made me realize the depth of video games as a narrative medium for indigenous peoples uh, to tell their stories in ways that other media just simply can't uh, communicate in the same way. Um, there's a tacit quality of embodied knowledge and experience in indigenous games. Um, and that quality is something I yearn to explore further in my research. Um, this realization has since driven me to explore the field of indigenous, indigenous video game development as a pathway to examine uh, these games through a practice-based study. So I haven't decided what kind of game I want to make yet, um, as I'm currently sampling different creation tools like Twine and Unity um, to see what's achievable in the time frame that I have, considering my status uh, as a total game dev noob. Um, but along with finishing the proposal, uh, the summer will be spent uh, training. So uh, this month I'm going into an intro to Unity course, or I am in an intro to Unity course, uh, to learn the basics of this game creation tool. And then in July I'll be traveling to Honolulu to participate in the sixth edition of the Skins video game workshop, uh, Hiohu, with the Initiative for Indigenous Futures and their local partner, uh, Kanea Kana. Uh, these workshops are designed to equip indigenous youth uh, with industry standard skills for game development like programming, design, game cinematics, and, and game art. Uh, last summer's edition of the workshop um, made a point-and-click adventure game uh, in which the Kanaka Maoli protagonist has to explore several planets, piloting their space canoe in search of their sibling who will help their father heal from a sickness. Um, the most notable aspect of the game is, uh, for me as a player, is that it supports um, play in two languages, uh, Malelo Hawaii and uh, English as well. And having the opportunity to build my video game development skills alongside Kanaka Maoli youth, um, while at the same time learning from them about how they go about presenting their indigeneity um, within a playable video game, is certainly going to be super special to me. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. So uh, once my summer in game training, uh, and uh, my summer in training in game development uh, is completed. Uh, I'll identify which development skills I'm really lacking in. Um, <laughs> programming, uh, uh, game art, uh, <laughs> and um, put a call out for help, uh, call out for project assistance to help uh, contribute to the project. Um, I'll most likely be looking for help uh, with programming, obviously, game art, and sound design, and uh, I'll work from late August through to late February on the game itself. Uh, all the while writing uh, my literature review, game contextualization, um, and reflective process essay. So by the end of my degree, the goal is to have a playable experimental video game that is available uh, to play by the public, by anybody. Um, and it's my goal to explore the possibilities for what indigenous video game, for what an indigenous video game can be, um, and how they can be. I want to explore narratives through play and virtual environments. Um, but all this is like a lot to learn, um, and it's it's over overwhelmingly it's just so exciting. So um, I also owe a lot to Abtech co-directors uh, Jason Edward Lewis and Skawanati, um, and their work that they're doing with other artists, thinkers, and technologists. In addition to the Skins video game workshops, um, Abtech also offers workshops on machinima, which are films made in virtual environments, um, as well as low tech a low-tech version of a seven-generation character design workshop where, uh, with pen and paper where participants are asked to imagine one of their descendants seven generations into the future. Uh, I've been helping to give these workshops uh, all over the place, like at Concordia uh, itself, Ganawage Reserve, Vancouver, and uh, Regina up to this point. And getting the chance to travel around and share knowledge uh, in these workshops on indigenous uses of new media uh, has been totally unexpected, but are um, wonderful. Uh, have been a wonderful part of my graduate education so far, and will continue to be um, until I'm done. Uh, not only am I training uh, my digital production and instructional skills uh, doing this work with Abtech, um, but most importantly, I'm having the chance to learn from uh, the participants themselves and other Indigenous peoples from all over. I want to say I'm super excited uh, where my education and professional development takes me. Thank you.
Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, Maze. It's been so interesting to hear from an uncompleted perspective. By uncompleted, I mean uncompleted in his master's thesis. But um, yeah, it's been so interesting to hear from an uncompleted perspective about what the process has been like and also your driving factors in creating a video game. I think for indigenous video games players, a game like this would be so interesting. I know for myself growing up, my brother and I always played video games in our spare time. It would have been so neat to see any sort of representation in the mainstream media. Not that it wasn't there, it's just that it wasn't easily accessible. And I think that that would make a big difference. Like, I know for me, if I were 12, I would probably be so much more into that video game than Call of Duty or other average mainstream games. Maze Longboat and Michelle Nahaney are essentially making the same thing. An indigenous video game, but with very different perspectives. Maze is creating a cyber game by an indigenous producer for an indigenous audience, and Michelle is creating a physical game through graphic design by an indigenous artist for an indigenous audience. Let's see what Michelle had to say about her game. Hatsquile, good morning. Michelle Nahaney, Quentin Sna, Aslahan Ohomeo, Skoomish Oth Ohomeo. I'm Michelle Nahaney. I'm from Squamish Nation and grew up in the village of Aslahan. Um, when it was called Mission Indian Reserve. <laughs> so um, that's part of my research is, you know, talking about uh, the language and how we change things. And um, I'll just quickly acknowledge the territory um, of my um, relatives, actually, because Squamish and um, uh, we're all in the Coast Salish family. So I'll just acknowledge them for the care of this territory. And uh, I'm here today. I'm going to, I've got some handouts for you. So I've been asked to speak on a game that I've made called Senokai and Ladders. And Senokai is our uh, Squamish double headed sea serpent. And I've been using it as a framework to explain uh, the two faces that I see in a neo colonial uh, context. So, for example, two faces of Aslahan, my community. We call it Aslahan, but legally it's still Mission uh, Indian Reserve. So that's an example of a double-headed uh, sea serpent. And I've got more in my game, which I'll, I'll roll out and show you um, after this presentation. Um, but basically, so I'm trying to pull apart scenarios um, from my professional uh, career. So I've been a graphic artist for 20 years now. I came back to school to do an MA um, after being in the field which was really um, like being on the front line of, of representation, right? So trying to change um, and trying to express um, who, who we are as Indigenous people and then more specifically like who um, Squamish people are. Um, if you're not from here, I'll just let you know that Squamish Nation is, uh, our, our communities are basically within the city of Vancouver. Uh, we've been moved to the city of North Vancouver, but um, you know the famous Stanley Park was our village sites. We had two village sites there and a village site in um, Kitsilano, uh, which is our, one of our chief names, <laughs> which has been changed from Katsilano to Kitsilano. Um, so yeah, so I've been working as a graphic designer. I'm also a communications consultant. I work for many um, Indigenous organizations. Um, and right now I work for my council, Squamish Nation Council. I've been involved with the um, Ian Campbell campaign for mayor. So Ian Campbell is a hereditary Squamish chief. Um, now running for mayor of Vancouver, which could be really incredible, the elections uh, in, in November. So I've been uh, working on that campaign as well. So within communications, um, went back in. I hadn't really even known about uh, Indigenous scholarship, you know, until I went back to do my MA. Um, I'd studied, of course, um, post-structuralism and all the good stuff. I found a lot in Stuart Hall. Um, and then when I came back to, to do my MA, found the Indigenous scholars, started trying to unpack decolonization. What, is, what did that mean? And I guess what I really wanted to do was use my skills um, as a designer and as a writer to bring some big ideas um, out from behind the big words. So behind the big word of decolonization, um, I came up with this activity book. So playing post-colonial, a decolonizing activity book for the woke and the weary. That's what I'm handing out to you right now. So this is my uh, research creation MA project. Um, the title really, you know, we're not, we're not post-colonial, uh, so I'm playing with that idea. Decolonizing activity book um, just came to a point where I don't think we'll get to decolonization, but we can have decolonizing practices, we can have a decolonizing lens 
or decolonizing activities, um, like you'll see in my, in my activity book. So this is from Emma Talks. Um, I co-curated an event called Squamish Matriarchs. So I brought in two um, Squamish um, matriarchal speakers, and I presented my game. This is me explaining my game. <laughs> and you're looking at ideas of uh, Senalkai and Chen Chen Stwai. So Chen Chen Stwai is their Squamish word uh, to hold each other up. So each of the ladders up are enactments where we're holding each other up in relation. So for example, the first square up is um, invite an indigenous speaker to your event. So you're holding us up, we're holding you up. But then this, the Senokai is uh, fail to have your honorarium ready on the day of the event. So you have to slide down. Um, and so it's really like it's a learning tool. The game is a rhetorical tool. So the game is a space of understanding um, that you know this neocolonial context is messy, but we have to keep trying. And you might have to have a few do-overs, so I'm allowing space for do-overs. I'm allowing um, some feedback um, through the, the Senokai. And then I'm also you know, uh, pushing our Squamish language. I'm not a language speaker. I am a, a board chair of Quiotstalmo, which is our Squamish language immersion um, NGO. And so I use my skills in fundraising and uh, corporate relations to, uh, to fund language learners because I just don't quite have the mouth for it. <laughs> but I try my best, you know, to introduce myself and then support others to learn. But by bringing this game into the city of Vancouver, which is essentially a place where Squamish really it's not represented, only in the last 10 years is there actually Coast Salish art on our lands. You know, basically we've been a space of um, totem pole, anukshuk, sort of any kind of First Nations um, look and feel was, was representing us to now. A lot of our artists have uh, really carved for the tourism market, like versus expressing our own Coast Salish heritage. So um, I've been a big supporter of our weaving resurgence as well. So these are all just coming in within the last 10 years. Um, so I just wanted to say too, like we use the uh, resurgence, uh, reclamation versus revitalization. Um, so I'd love to, anyone wants to talk about that later. <laughs> so I'm really trying to put that out because revitalization to us, it sounds like it died at some point, but it didn't. Um, it was definitely underground and it was um, cared for by very strong people, which is another story I'm interested in telling. So this is another one of the squares. Take a First Nations Studies cor course as a Chen and then embarrass an Indigenous person by oppressing them with your superior understanding. Uh, First Nations culture and terminology, right? So that happens, and I'm and I'm talking about it. Um, yeah. So again, so that's the Chen Chen Stwai. That's the Senokai. So I'm trying to show um, these as technology. Like these are decolonizing frameworks. So you could use this word um, in any scenario and say, like, are we holding each other up here? Uh, are we supporting one another? Um, so an example of a Senokai is somebody just told me actually they had used my name and Quiot Stalmo's name on a grant application without telling either of us and wrote me this big long rationale of how it was helping me, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I, you know, of course was very strong about that, you know, Quiot Stalmo is for language reclamation, not for, you know, your conference idea. Um, but that's an example of a St. Alkai, like helping and harming. And what's the continuum of that? So I'm looking at a really specific space with the decolonizing. Um, and then I'm using Squamish technology uh, to, to express that and also to share them. I share them out, you know, and I see other people using them now. And, um, and it's exciting to me. It's great. It really reframes, um, like, who we are and what we have to offer um, somebody said from my workshop that they had never looked at, at indigenous um, ideas as something that they could benefit from. And that was a, a settler, European person actually said that to me at one of my workshops, which I loved. I thought it was great. So these are my decolonizing flashcards, and um, they're on the cover of the, of the book. And so basically taking uh, media and representation and, of course, the Ten Little Indians and then... Um, giving voice to um, the stagnant representation. So this says, 10 little Indians are counting the number of years that racism is propagated through mainstream media. So using like hipster graphic design and the kind of retro 45 record, right? Saying something really clearly. So 
I don't think I'm minimizing the issues by putting them in this framework, but I'm disrupting like how it's delivered and hopefully how, how it comes in as accepted. So I use these in the classroom, classroom setting and I do some small group work and have uh, groups look at the cars and then talk about them. So this one, 10 little Indians will no longer be kept in a racialized box and then, uh, or perform our indigeneity on, on your command. So, so these are real toys. Um, these are things you know that were around when I was growing up. Um, so, um, but the ideas aren't lost. You know that um, that I can give voice to the images, and I can you know speak to like, I guess, yeah, like, what is it? It's a it's a form of racism, and it's so normalized. And so I'm trying to use graphic art and writing to to break those apart. So this is my new Indian agent paper doll. I guess it's just really playing with like appropriation and reappropriation. And so I've actually appropriated this image from a, a vintage um, European race car magazine. This guy was in a race car magazine. Um, <laughs> and, but I wanted to just pull out this, you know, that to me the, the Indian agent uh, behaviors um, are, are now. It's not just somebody, you know, um, from the past that these things are happening now and we're being controlled in these subversive ways. And I have a little quote on there that says, unfortunately, persons from any gender, race, or class, or human grouping can exhibit new Indian agent behaviors. Beware. So I think, um, you know, some of this goes on in our own communities, and these are neo-colonial oppressions that we're, you know, embodying um, consciously or not. And so, um, so my paper doll pulls that out a little bit. And it's also just the, the symbolism of the paper doll, the idea that you know, their ideas, they can change. Their behaviors, they can change. You know, they don't have to be solid. Uh, and these are things that I'm also trying to bring up through my game, is that you know, these are structures. And so we can take them out of you know, being offended. Um, I said, if you feel fragile from reading any Indian Indicators of new Indian agentness, there's still time to flex your reflexivity. You can stop supremacy. We can work together better. So playing with, you know, the infomercial uh, type language, I guess, you know, and, uh, you know, pulling that into, into our spaces, into the spaces that I see. All of this stuff really comes from my career as a, as a consultant, um, working with corporate groups, government groups, lots of NGOs, and then, of course, First Nations. Um, so I'm expressing not only things that have happened to me, but just stories that my other, um, my colleagues share with me and things that we talk about together, you know, like getting, um, you know, contracts taken from us, or like I said, my name being used on a grant or different things that happen. Like these are the new Indian agent spaces. Uh, who benefits, you know, from projects? Um, and how, how can we talk about it? So that's what I'm trying to make some space for here. Um, I guess, really, I mean, that's the question. I've, I've done the handouts. I'm going to show the game after this. Um, I just, I'm graduating next week. I get my MA, so I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> um, and then I'm starting a PhD. I'm starting a PhD in September. I just uh, won an entrance award. I'm really excited about that. And I'm going to keep pushing the Squamish matriarchy and, in innovative ways. So... Watch out for those. <laughs> and that's it. Have a decolonizing day. Thank you. <laughs> Michelle's game openly critiques our settler colonial society. She creates a snakes and ladders game for decolonization while being witty and without holding back. And I love that she does that because in our reconciliation-based society, no one actually takes the time to consider Indigenous people or what Indigenous people want or need, especially not elders. I would really recommend playing the game in person if you ever have the opportunity. For me, this episode taught me that indigeneity exists in very different ways in the digital humanities, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. There will always be indigenous designers making clothes, tattooing, making art, video games, writing books, rewriting books, making sound art, podcasts, and so much more. We're everywhere. You just have to look for us. You just listened to episode two of Recoding Relations. 
Big, a big thank you to everyone who participated in the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, particularly the organizers Dave Gertner and Jordan Abel. Thank you to our partners, the Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the First Nations and Indigenous Studies Program at the University of British Columbia, the Department of First Nation Studies at Simon Fraser University, and Indigitization, CITR Radio, and finally, Unseated Airwaves. To learn more about the Symposium for Indigenous New Media, visit indigenousnewmedia.wordpress.com or search the Twitter hashtag SINM2018 to catch some of the key moments and conversations of the conference. This episode was produced by me, Autumn Schnell, and with music featured by Chris Dirksen and Morning Coop. I would like to thank Jordan Abel for sharing your story with us, as well as Maisel Longboat for asking critical questions about the design of the video game, and Michelle Nahaney for sharing your game and critical theory with us. This episode was produced in Emiskwichi with Sky again on Treaty 6 territory of the Cree, Métis, Nakota Sioux, and Soto peoples, and aired on unceded, ancestral, traditional, and current homelands of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I'm Autumn Chanel, and that was episode 2 of Recoding Relations. <laughs>